Matthew 6. Hear the word of the Lord beginning in verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We come to you, our Father in heaven, and we echo these words this morning. You are our Father. You have saved us and redeemed us and adopted us as your children. You love to give good gifts to your children. You love to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. And we ask that this morning. We pray for a pouring out of your Spirit on our hearts, on our minds, as we hear your word. So that the truth of it might not just be something we behold and then turn away and forget as a person looks in a mirror, but instead that you would impress your truth, Lord, upon our hearts. Make us doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. We need to learn how to pray, Lord. We we don't pray as we ought. We don't know how to pray as we ought, as the Apostle Paul said. But your spirit teaches us, and he teaches us now this morning through the words of Jesus that were just read. And so teach us to pray. In Christ's name and for his glory, amen. Well, brothers and sisters, this is now the third week we've been sitting with Jesus' disciples at Jesus' feet, learning as he teaches us how to pray. It's prayer. Prayer is perhaps one of the most basic realities to every Christian. It's maybe the most basic form of worship. When a sinner comes to have his or her eyes open to the goodness of God in Christ and have a heart changed to receive the free offer of grace and forgiveness of their sin, and then they they receive those, the first impulse is to pray. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Prayer is as natural to a Christian as breath is to a baby when they come into the world. But in our discipleship, in our following after Christ, though we have that as, as our part of our new nature, the impulse to pray We need to be taught how to pray. We don't always know how to pray as we ought. We need to learn how to pray rightly. We need to learn the kinds of prayers that are acceptable to God. And that's what Jesus is teaching us here in Matthew 6. We need to remember that prayer is made by us, but it's not about us. It's not about us. Prayer is about God. And God tells us there are prayers that are acceptable and there are prayers that are not acceptable. In our worship to him. And this week, Jesus is teaching us what kind of a prayer is acceptable to God? What what are the elements of a prayer that are acceptable to God? Now, like we saw last week, as we go through this prayer, as we study this prayer, primarily what Jesus intended was not for us to memorize it and recite these words all the time. That's why he says, pray like this, not he says, pray like this, or as as um, the NASB says, pray in this manner. Pray like this. 
Jesus is giving us a guide in prayer, not necessarily, although it is helpful to memorize this prayer and to even pray it, but it's a guide for prayer. It's a pattern. When we pray, when we come to this prayer, we should not primarily be looking for something to memorize. What we should be looking for is to dig out what are the principles Jesus is teaching us by what he chooses to put in this prayer, and then filtering our own prayers through that guide and patterning our prayers after that guide, after what Jesus is teaching us from it. So last week, we learned how to address God when we come to him in prayer. We found that he is our Father in heaven. When we approach God, we approach him first and foremost as Father when we are in Christ. Through Christ, through his death and resurrection, our sin is paid for, our iniquity is atoned. This means we are justified, and not only are we justified, meaning not guilty, we are brought into his family, and we are children, and we are rightful heirs of God, and so we belong before him in prayer. So we come with confidence, the kind of confidence that a child comes with to her father or his father. We come confidently because we know that not only is God committed to our protection, but he has love, he has tenderness, he has compassion for his children. He cares, in other words. We, we pray to God knowing that he cares what we're saying. And so we come confidently. But then we come with reverence because he's not just our father, he's our father in heaven. And as our father in heaven, he is far above us. His, his wisdom and his knowledge are far above ours. His ways and his thoughts are far above ours. And he also has complete resources to do whatever he pleases. And so when we come to him in prayer, we are coming to the one who can change things and who does change things and has unlimited resources on his side to do whatever he wants. And then third, we, came, we learned that coming to God as our father means we come together. We come together as a family. We pray in the plural, our father in heaven. And then we pray for our brothers and sisters. We pray with and for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Today we come now, after the address to God, the preface as it is commonly called, we come to the first of six petitions that are contained in the Lord's Prayer. Petitions, requests, things that we ask of God. So we, we learn, and we're going to learn, as we spend a week on each of these petitions, we're going to learn what they entail, but what we can also learn from is how they're organized. And what we learn by that is what is Christ's priority. In the first three petitions, they all have to do with God, asking things for God. Your name be hallowed. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. And only after that do we get to bringing my requests, my needs, are my provision, my pardon, my protection. So reflecting on this, on, on just this, it reshapes how we commonly approach God in prayer, doesn't it? It's so common, for me anyway, in my self-centeredness to think of me coming to God sort of as coming with a, with a to-do list, things I want changed. And that's not necessarily bad. We should come asking things. Jesus taught us to ask. The question is, what are we asking? What are we asking? And what is the priority of what we're asking? It's all too common that we get our priorities out of order. And so that's, that's what Jesus is doing here. Is he's the first, one of the first things that we see is that he's reordering our priorities in prayer, realigning our priorities to match his. And the first priority we see that he gives us today is for the honor and glory and hallowing of God's name, concern for God's name. Now, 
before we actually get into it, it's important that we, I want to mention why we should spend time studying. Are we just picking words apart needlessly here? I mean, how complicated can hallowed be your name be? Well, several reasons we should really look into this carefully is, number one, it's so familiar we can forget what we're asking. So familiar. Some of, some of us have prayed this prayer hundreds of times in our lives, thousands of times in our lives for some. So it's worth slowing down and looking closer. What exactly are we praying? What is this prayer we've been praying over and over again? For others, maybe you don't even know what hallowed means. And so maybe you've been praying it, you've prayed it many times, but you don't even know what it means. I mean, after all, how many of you have ever used the word hallow in any context besides this? Maybe Halloween. And we don't have time to get into how that is related. Because it is, but we don't have time to go there. And then maybe for others, we know that it has to do with holy, the word holy, they're related, but we don't know exactly how. Maybe we think that it's a sort of a polite nod to God's holiness, so maybe stepping up the level of reverence before we come to him in prayer, sort of like a long live the king before, when we stand before a, a person of royalty. But actually, hallowed be your name is a petition. It's an asking of something. It's the same exact verb form as we find in the other five petitions, the same verb form as we find in give us this day our daily bread. We're asking God to do something when we pray, hallowed be your name. And what's more, this petition is placed first, meaning Jesus prioritizes it first. First place in prayer, before anything else, we ask God to do this, to hallow his name, to make his name be regarded and treated as holy. This is our priority in prayer. And if it is not, then we are not ordering our prayers as we ought to. So to understand this petition, I want to look at, look at it in two main parts this morning. First, we're going to look at what is meant by your name. What does Jesus mean when he talks about your name? And secondly, then we're going to look at what it means to hallow his name. So when Jesus talks about God's name, he is talking about God's name in the way that the scriptures talk about God's name, which is much more than what we typically mean when we talk about someone's name. Think about how we, talk, how we think about names. Names rarely have any very significant meaning in our time, in our culture. For us, oftentimes, as I think about uh, when, when Ann and I were deciding what we were going to name our daughter, we, we go with what we like the sound of, what has a ring to it. What maybe, oftentimes, and as in the case with us, we think about maybe finding a name that has a, has a nice meaning that we hope our child will live up to or, or something like that. But this, is all, this doesn't cast a shadow to Scripture's idea of names and the meaning behind names. If you think about it, remember God. How many times did God rename people to, to symbolize something? He named, renamed Abram, Abraham. He renamed Jacob, Israel. And there's other examples of many, many other examples of things being named in the Old Testament to reflect truth about them or about an event Whatever. In fact, if you look at the names of the prophets, that's a good study sometime. Look at the names of the prophets in the Old Testament. Almost all of their names mean something that has to do with their prophecy. Here's an example. 1 Samuel, verse, 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 30. This is, this is when David was not yet King David. He was still be, waiting to be King David, and Saul was king. Listen to what it says here. This is an example of how the scripture uses this term, this word name. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul. So David was more successful. David was better at fighting than Saul. 
And then this is the result. So that his name was highly esteemed. His name. Does that mean the word David was held up and exalted? No. That's not, that combination of letters was all of a sudden meant something new? No, it's, it's reflective of his being, his character, his skill, his success. And so it is with God's name. When we talk about the name of God, brothers and sisters, when we talk about God's name, there is nothing more weighty, more significant, more majestic, more glorious that we can take on our lips. There is nothing greater in the universe than God's name. Because when we speak of God's name, we're not speaking of a combination of letters. We are speaking of the sum total of his self-revelation to us. Everything he wants us to know about himself is revealed in names. There is no priority that is more weighty than this. We see this in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, this is when Moses is on Mount Sinai He's received the commandments from the Lord, the Ten Commandments, the first time. Then he came down the mountain, and he found the people worshiping a golden calf, saying, this is your God. And he broke the commandments, and then God called him back up, and God was going to do away with the people of Israel, but Moses interceded. This is after all of that. So God has decided to spare the people, and, and God is saying, okay, take the people and go to the promised land. And Moses wants to make sure God is with him. And so he, he's having this conversation with God. And in chapter 33, verse 18 Moses asks this of the Lord. He says, please show me your glory. I don't think Moses knew what he was asking, but he says, please show me your glory. And God doesn't say no. God doesn't say no. In fact, God says this. God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. This is in direct response to his request. And will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And then this actually happens in the next chapter, a few verses later, starting in verse 5, chapter 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, that is Moses, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation, and so on. It's a well-known passage to us, as it should be, because this is the place where God proclaims possibly the most clearly in the Old Testament to Moses his name. This is my character. This is how I want you to know me, Moses. And we find references throughout the entire rest of Scripture to this passage, because this is God's name. His name is where his glory is revealed. His name is how he answered that request of Moses to show him his glory. So what, we, what we're discovering is knowing God's name has much more to do with knowing who God is than knowing what the combination of letters is that spells his name. There's a lot of people that know what God's name is that don't fear him. There's a lot of people that know what God's name is that don't respond in an appropriate way because they don't know actually, they don't know him. This this is emphasized throughout scripture. I want to draw your attention to a couple places. Don't try to turn to all these places because I'm going to reference a lot of scriptures this morning. But just listen to what is said here in Psalm 9, verse 10. Those who know your name, talking to God, those who know your name put their trust in you. 
Now, let me ask you sort of a rhetorical question. Does that mean that those who know that God's name is, well, in, in this context, it would have been Yahweh, those who know that name, that that's what God's name is, put their trust in you? Probably not. Just like today, we wouldn't say that everyone who knows the name God, G-O-D, or the name Jesus, J-E-S-U-S, means that they put their trust in him, right? So knowledge of God's name, the idea of it is you know him. You know him, that he is a God gracious and compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And when you know him, you trust him. Another example, Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Is he talking about a combination of letters? Of course not. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs to it and is safe. In other words, those who know that his name, that he has made himself known as a God who is gracious to sinners and merciful, will run to him and find protection in that name. Psalm 113, verses 1 through 3. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. So the response of God's people to his name is praise, passion for his name, because that is to reflect God's own passion for his name. God cares about his name. God acts throughout all of scripture, you'll see, for the sake of his name. He saves people for the sake of his name. He condemns people for the sake of his name. He judges people. He is jealous for the sake of his name, and he desires that his name alone be exalted and glorified throughout the earth. This is what God says through the prophet Malachi, Malachi 1.11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, does that sound familiar from what we just read? For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Do you hear God's passion for the glory of his name? Is there anything more majestic we can occupy ourselves with in prayer than this? God's people throughout time have trusted in that name because it's, it's in that name that God reveals to us who he is and all of his majesty, his love, his justice, his holiness, his goodness, and all of his other attributes. But you know something? All of that, all of that in the Old Testament, all of those great expressions of God's name and repetitions of that passage in Exodus 34, that was all setting the stage for the time when God would take on a name even more glorious, that would even more fully encompass the greatness of who he is. And that name was the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. That name means Lord, Savior, King. He was true God, but he took on fully human nature to reveal God in the most full, personal way possible. This is possibly made the clearest in John 17, verse 6, where Jesus, Jesus is about to go to the cross, and he prays this to his father. Listen to what he says. John 17, 6, I have manifested your name 
to the people whom you gave me out of the world. I've manifested your name. Jesus came to manifest, reveal, make known God's name. The entire nature of God. That's what we've been learning. His entire being. This is why John writes in another place, in chapter 1, verse 14, he writes this, the word, that is Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. What kind of glory? Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then later in verse 18, he says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he, Jesus, the Word, has made him known. He has made him known. The author of Hebrews tells us that God is the radiance, or that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Hebrews 1.3. Our Lord Jesus, while he was on earth then, he took an array of other names to himself as well by which we can know what God is like, such as, I'll give you a few examples, I'll go through these quickly, he is the bread of life, giving himself for the life of the world, John 6, 35 and 33. He is the good shepherd who loves, leads, cares for, and ultimately lays down his life for the sheep. Do you see the parallel with that with Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. See, Jesus is fulfilling all the names of God that were revealed in the Old Testament. He's the good shepherd, and he shows us what the good shepherd ultimately does. He lays down his life for the sheep. He is the way, the truth, and the life, apart from whom no one comes to the Father, but when someone comes to the Father through him, no one is kept away. He's the true vine, the one who produces spiritual life and growth in his disciples. This, brothers and sisters, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus, this glorious one, this perfect, beautiful, sinless Son of God, came to reveal all of this truth to us and then die. And then die, because, brothers and sisters, if he didn't die, all of that remains unattainable for you. It does not apply to you. All that Jesus came to reveal about God cannot apply to you if Jesus doesn't die. Because when he died, when he subjected himself to the agonizing death at the hands of the ones that he came to reveal himself to, when he took on himself the crushing weight of the wrath of God for your sins, he was doing it. He was becoming the bread of life. The life, the bread that gave himself for the life of the world. Because Brothers and sisters, if Jesus doesn't lay his life down for you, you cannot be his sheep. Because you're too wicked to be his sheep. I'm too wicked to be his sheep. We don't want to be his sheep. We went astray from him. So he has to first lay his life down for us. Jesus can only be our spiritual bread from heaven if he breaks it and sheds his blood for us. He did it so that you could. But that's not the end. It's not the end yet. There was a reward for such a sacrifice. There was a joy that Jesus was looking to at the end of his journey. There was a prize to be won. We read this earlier in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. That's glorious. But it's not nearly as glorious as what's coming next. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Apostle Peter says this in Acts 10. Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Through his name. All authority, brothers and sisters, in heaven and on earth has been given to our Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing that stands in his way. Our Lord Jesus will be worshipped and bowed to, shall we say, hallowed by everything in creation. And the mission of the church is to make his name known. To make his name known. To proclaim the name of Jesus, the name that is above every name. To make disciples in his name. To baptize people in his name. Because there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we could go on. Brothers and sisters, I'm doing this on purpose. I'm I'm throwing all of these scriptures at you on purpose because I want us to see how astounding the scope of what was meant by the name of God and how weighty and marvelous and wonderful it is to take God's name on our lips. When we look at that simple term, your name, we are looking at the entirety of God's being revealed in Jesus Christ. What a subject for study, meditation, wonder, and marvel. And it's what we should be doing now because it's what we're going to be doing for the length of eternity and lifting up our voices in praise and thanksgiving to God for it. So is it any wonder that Jesus tells us this is our priority in prayer. This most marvelous of all petitions, hallowed be your name. But to understand the full extent of what, what he's saying, we have to then now turn and consider what does it mean to hallow his name? What, what does that look like? What does that mean? What are we asking? What are we, what are we praying for when we ask this? The truth of the matter is that hallowed, that word, is pretty much a relic from an older form of English that we don't use anymore. That's why you're not as familiar with it. That's why you don't use it from from day to day. um, Most English translations actually preserve this word because of its familiarity in the Lord's Prayer. This actually, what, what a lot of people don't realize is this word is not rare. It's all over in the New Testament. It's all over. It's just not, it's just not translated that way. It's only translated hallowed here because that's how people know it. The Greek word is hagiadzo, which is related to the noun hagias, which means holy. And hagiadzo means to sanctify. That's how it's almost always translated. To think of or make or regard something as holy. This word is used now. What's interesting about this word is that it can meet, it has slightly different nuances depending on who is the subject or who is the object of the verb. I'm trying not to get too technical here, but who is being talked about being sanctified? It has a little bit of different nu- nuance. Now let me give you an example. So again, when Jesus was praying to his Father in John 17, he prays this: 
1717, sanctify, hagiadzo, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So in this context, Jesus is asking God to sanctify us. And yet in the Lord's prayer, he's asking us to sanctify the name, or he's, he's asking God to sanctify his own name. So what, how, what is the relationship there? How are we supposed to understand that? Well, again, this verb has a different sense depending on who is being spoken about. So in the case of Jesus praying for us to God, that God would sanctify us in the truth, he's praying that we will be made holy as we are exposed to God's holiness in his word. That by coming in contact with God through his word, we will be made holy. This goes along with the command to us in 1 Peter that we are to be holy as God is holy. But when we are talking about God, who is already infinitely holy, who is the God thrice holy, 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 holy is the Lord of hosts. That means infinitely holy, can't get any more holy. Why would we pray to sanctify his name, to make it holy? Certainly we can't mean that he will somehow grow in holiness or attain more holiness. That'd be unthinkable. No, what we pray for when we pray that God's name would be hallowed is that his name will be regarded as holy in our and other people's eyes. That his holiness will grow in our eyes, in our understanding. That we will see and regard him and revere him as the holy God that he is. That we will recognize what a, what a thing it is to be reverenced that it will not come to, become to us something casual and commonplace, but that we will now and, and with increasing measure throughout time, we will stand in awe before his name. We pray for what the psalmist prays for in Psalm 29. He says, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. That's what we pray for, that we and others would ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Puritan Thomas Watson puts it this way, quote, in this petition, we pray that God's name may shine forth gloriously and that it may be honored and sanctified by us in the whole course and tenor of our lives, unquote. So we pray that the name and the glory of God would loom large in our minds, that it would be the most important thing in our hearts that it would be more weighty and influential and impactful to us than any other influence in our lives. Think for a moment how that would change the nature of our prayers if we rightly hallowed God's name first. Because I think we have, often have a perverted perception of prayer, don't we? we I, I think of it as me coming to God to change his mind about something. Do you ever come to God that way? I, I'm going to come and I'm going, to, I'm going to change his mind. Now, most of us wouldn't say that because we know better. But that's often how we treat prayer. Me bringing him a list of things I want him to do, things I want changed. But what if we actually prayed this first and actually meant it? I think it would be profound. It changes the entire focus. Because we will come. It's not that we, don't, it's not that we are not going to come and ask anything anymore for that anything to be changed. But the first thing we're going to ask to be changed is me. I want to know his name. I want to honor his name. I want him to be known through me and adored, and acknowledged everywhere on earth. That's how it changes the perspective in our prayers. That's my priority now. And when that is my priority, I will be asking other things than what I would ask in my own sinful flesh. When that is truly my concern. 
Now, you might imagine there's many ways that we could, that, that that would look. What does it look like for God to hallow his name? What's practically, what does that look like? And there are. Since God's name being hallowed is a huge topic that we simply don't have time to go into today, but I want to give you seven ways that God's name is hallowed. And I give you these because when we, when we pray, as we're, as we're seeking to do, we're seeking to pray this prayer as our own. When we pray, we need to have something it's helpful to have some concrete things to think about. How is God's name hallowed? And so therefore, more practically, what can I pray? Again, we're to take this concept of hallowed be your name and flesh it out in our prayers. So what, how is God's name hallowed? Seven things, and then we'll be done. God's name is hallowed when, number one, he is known. Maybe this goes without saying, but the more God is known, the more he will be hallowed. Again, like we saw in, in, in Psalm 9, verse 10, those who know your name put their trust in you. Those who don't know your name in that intimate, close sense don't put their trust in you. Brothers and sisters, if you are Christ's and you are God's, then God desires to be known by you. Not just that you know about him, but that you know him. He wants you to approach his word to know him. The apostle Peter prays for, the Christ, for Christians to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul prays that the Philippians will abound more and more, their, their love will abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And of course, Jesus himself said again in John 17, this is eternal life, that they know you. He didn't say that they know about you. And brothers and sisters, it's a, it's a world of difference, isn't it? When we come to God's word to learn about him as if we were listening to a lecture versus coming to his word to know him. He wants you to know him. And how do we know that? Because this is a big book. And it's full of knowledge of his name. And he wants you, Christian, to get in here and find out who he is. He wants you to benefit from his promises, from his comforts, from his, his exhortations. He wants you to know him. So when you read his word, you come not just to know about him, but to know him. So God's name is hallowed when he is known. Number two, he is, his name is hallowed when he is trusted. When he is trusted. Psalm 33, 21 gives us this picture. Our heart is glad in him. Why? Because we trust in his holy name. The more we know God's name, the more we know how trustworthy he is, the more we will trust him. And then the more that the people around us will see it. Imagine, brothers and sisters, imagine a Christian who claims to know the God of the universe as his father or her father but who goes around anxious, afraid, and worried about lots of things. Now, I say this to myself as much as to any of you. Why should your friends trust that God? The God you claim to worship. The God I claim to worship when we're afraid and anxious and worried. But then let me give you another picture. What about a, what about a Christian whose heart is glad? And you can tell people, even when you're in the midst of very difficult circumstances, your heart is glad, you're, you're cheerful. 
not pretending as though it doesn't exist, but when you can tell people, I'm cheerful because I trust in the holy name of my God. How much will that honor and hallow him, his name? How much will that be appealing to those who are looking on from the outside? He's trusted. When he's revered, number three. God's name is hallowed when he is revered. When we only speak of him with utmost reverence and respect. God deemed this one significant enough to put as the third commandment. You know this. Commandment number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So Taking, taking God's name is just simply to speak casually or, or over, over casually or carelessly about the Lord or the things of the Lord, about his word, about anything through which he reveals himself or makes himself known. This is, this is an aside. This is, I think, that we can get careless here as Christians, especially in the area of Christian comedy. I think Christian comedy can go sour very quickly, making jokes about the church or God even sometimes. We need to be very careful that jokes and humor never bring dishonor, even, even approach bringing dishonor on the name of the Lord. If it's borderline, don't go there. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Number four, his name is hallowed when he is thanked. When he is thanked. God receives honor to his name when people thank him rather than, when his people thank him rather than complain. When we are known as thankful people by and large rather than complaining people. So this would be a this is a good a good practice, a good discipline for each of God's children to employ in their lives. Make it a regular practice to search out the good things God has done for you. There's a lot of them. The, the, the psalmist in Psalm 103 says, bless the Lord and forget not all his benefits to you. Forget them not, because we're so prone to forget them. We're complainers by nature, aren't we? Every one of us is complainer by nature. Because we need to look. This is a, a, good, a good way to do this would be whoever you live with, your, your family, at the end of each day, go back through the day and, and try and list the things that God did for you that day. How did God protect you? How did God take care of you? And you'll find that even in the most mundane things, God's fingerprint is everywhere. And we ought to give him thanks for those things. And, and it seems like a no-brainer, but how often do we thank him for his salvation and all the elements of it? Thank him for making him your, you his child. Thank him for rescuing, rescuing you. Thank him for opening your eyes to the gospel and so much more. Thank him always and for everything, like the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5.19. Number five, God's name is hallowed when he is loved by his people, when he is loved. Jesus said that the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Does your heart burn with love for the one who created and redeemed and adopted and sanctifies and will one day glorify you? Each one of us who is truly Christ's has at least an ember of love in our hearts for God. And, and sometimes, some days, that ember has just got a flicker of red in it. And other days, it's, it's a flame. But what we need to pray, for when we pray that God's name will be hallowed, we need to pray that, that God will take the bellows of his grace and his, and his 
kindness and his love for us and that he will, he will fan that into flame so that we give him the first of our love and not the leftovers. That his love would control us. And then, of course, we know from what Christ says in other places that that love will express itself in obedience. Not a begrudging obedience to his commands, but a, a joyful obedience. So we should pray for that as well. And that people then will see our obedience and then his name will be hallowed. Number six, God's name is hallowed when his holiness is imitated by his children. To a watching world, this is possibly the greatest thing that will hallow God's name. Possibly. I can't, I can't prove that from scripture, but where you and me, brothers and sisters, you and me as children of the holy God imitate his holiness his name will be hallowed or seen as regarded as holy. We are, picture, we are to be pictures of, of course, much less pictures of, but we're nevertheless, we are to be pictures of God's holiness. 1 Peter 1, 14 and 15, as obedient children. So notice, Peter is starting the same place as Jesus is. He's assuming that those who are hearing his instruction are already God's children. So in other words, this is not a way you earn God's favor. But as obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is not calling you to some kind of sinless perfection. He knows that, that's, that, that you're not going to be sinless. He knows that. It's a call, rather, to be different, separate, set apart, that's what holy means. Is your life marked by a noticeable difference from those unsaved around you? In the things that you say at work, the things you talk about, the way you talk about your spouse, the way you talk to your spouse, the things you prioritize, the things that you love to think about and spend your time meditating on, the ways you use your money. Is it clear to you and to those closest to you and those not as close to you is it clear to you that those things are marked out for God? Those things are set apart as holy to him. As a, as a Christian, brothers and sisters, we aren't, we aren't sinless. We're not called to be sinless, but we are called to sin less and to be growing in holiness. That the call to be a Christian is a call to holiness. So we should seek to imitate our Father who is holy. Finally, number seven, God's name is hallowed when he is proclaimed to those who don't yet know him. When he's proclaimed. Yet again in 1 Peter, next chapter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, there's the word again, holy, a people for his own possession. Why? So that you might go to church on Sunday in some kind of holy huddle and never speak of Christ to anyone but your brothers and sisters? No that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why we're here. Brothers and sisters, we are adopted by the living God, but we are still here. The fact that we're still here tells us something really significant. The job's not done. We're here among unbelievers because there are people out there yet to be one. God's name is yet to be known throughout all the earth as his passion tells us. That it is, that verse we read from Malachi. My name will be great among the nations. That's not done yet. And we are here to proclaim his excellencies. 
both to one another. By the way, I said it earlier as if it was exclusionary. Both to one another. But in this context, it's outward to those who are outside, even those who would persecute us. Our lives are not our own. We are children of the Heavenly Father. We are privileged. We know God through Jesus Christ, but we are not to be a silent people. We are not to be a people whose blessings terminate on ourselves. In fact, this is the last scripture I'm going to share with you, but in the next chapter of 1 Peter, chapter 3, verse 15, this is possibly the most parallel phrase to hallowed be your name in the Bible. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. If you translate that, it's in your hearts, sanctify the Lord, Jesus. Sanctify the Lord, the Christ. I'm not exactly sure how it goes, but it's, the, it's Hagiadzo again. Sanctify him. Hallow him in your hearts. And then do what? Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. We hallow God's name by being prepared to speak of him. These are just seven ways we could go on, but we don't have time this morning. The list could go on and on, and it's our privilege, brothers and sisters, it's our privilege to think and meditate on how we can do this more. In the sphere in which you live, how can you hallow God's name? Do you make that a regular matter of prayer? If we don't, we're neglecting the first way that Jesus taught us to pray. Our first matter of prayer is, how will you, Lord, be hallowed in my life today? And may it be. And teach me how it needs to be. And may, I, may you enable me to do it by your spirit. Brothers and sisters, it is a great name that we have been saved by. It is indeed, as we sang earlier, it is a matchless name. There is no greater calling. There is no greater thing to pray for, to live for, than the glory and the honor of our God's name. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for your name that we've just begun to scratch the surface of this morning. We praise you that you told us your name. We are thankful and we are blessed beyond belief that you condescended to create us. And then once we became sinners to save us, and to let us know that you are not a God who loves and delights in the death of the wicked, but you are a God who desires to save. You revealed this and so much more, Lord, to us by giving us your name, by telling us your name. So let it be hallowed, Lord. Let us never speak of you, but in the most reverent and honoring ways. May the lives that we live be lives of holiness that reflect your holiness. May we endure hardship and suffering for the glory of your name. May we dare to be considered set apart and different for the glory of your name. May you receive the first and the best of our love. There are, there are some who need to trust you more. Trust your name. And, and Lord, we are thankful that we have the promise that as we trust your name, our hearts will be glad. There is not one among us who doesn't want to have a glad and a cheerful heart. So let us trust 
in your most worthy name that is a strong tower for us and the righteous runs there and is safe. Hallow your name among us today and as we go from here. In Christ's name, amen.